The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Why is one of the most renowned hedge fund managers in capitalist America finding inspiration from an influential Chinese communist? And are the oil fields of West Texas the salve for Exxon's woes or a potential value trap? These are the issues we'll be tackling in this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and my co-host, as ever, is Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hello. So first, let's turn to Ray Dalio. He's turned Bridgewater Associates into a capitalist success story. The hedge fund he founded more than 40 years ago manages some $160 billion in assets and is just as famous for its culture of radical truth and transparency as it is for its financial results. In his forthcoming book, though, Dalio heaps praise on Wang Qishan, the Secretary of Central Commission for Discipline, Inspection, and the People's Republic of China. That's a mouthful. Joining us to explain what brings this odd couple together is one of Breaking View's newest recruits, Chris Bedore. Hello, Chris. Hi, how are you guys? Good, thanks for coming on. So, Chris, first of all, why don't you tell us who Wang Qishan, how do you say his Wang name? Wang Qishan? Yeah. Who is he? <laughs> he's got a very long title. He's in a very long like department. What's going on? It is a mouthful, as you said. Um, so Wang is a member of the Politburo Standing Committee. This is a seven-member organization that sits at the uppermost echelon of Chinese politics. Um, and within, so his current role is he is the head of, as you say, the CCDI, or the he's effectively the anti-corruption czar in the country. Um, but his kind of role in Chinese politics for the past. Uh, I mean, nearly two decades now has been as a firefighter. So wherever there's a problem, whether it's a financial problem in Guangdong, whether it's a SARS outbreak in Beijing, or, you know, most recently corruption, uh, he is the guy that is parachuted in to take care of the problem. So he's he's your all-purpose firefighter. Um, and he also has a lot of financial markets background, uh, and he's worked very closely with the U.S. Treasury Department, especially back in the aughts. So explain to me how, how he's a firefighter. Where, what's his status? Is he, a good, does he, is he good at what he's doing or, or not? Yeah, he is. Um, I think that he has this kind of template. If you look at his many kind of discrete uh, situations that he's been in where he's been parachuted in, he always has this kind of MO of he comes in and uh, maybe not himself, but at least the local Communist Party then acknowledges that there's been some sort of failings. Um, and he takes remedial action. It's very easy for him to acknowledge those failings because it was not on his watch. It was, of course, on his predecessor's watch. Um, and that gives him kind of the political space to say, okay, we need to really crack some heads together and, and make changes around here. And he's done that, whether it was, again, in Guangdong or in Beijing or um, now with the anti-corruption drive. I mean, he's still, even as recently as a couple months ago, he's still been saying there's still corruption within the So party. this is unusual, though, in terms of how of how the you know people in, in the government operate then? Yeah, I think that, you know, in the piece we talk about that he has this kind of impulse to transparency. And um, that might be one aspect that Dalio sees in him as, and sees as kind of a kindred spirit. And I think that's right. But you have to qualify that as, you know, that's relative to China's political, uh, you know, obviously very opaque political system. So you have to kind of place him on a spectrum of Communist Party officials. And on that spectrum, he definitely ranks as the more uh, transparent um, of those figures. So, I mean, I, I think, as you just mentioned, I'm now beginning to see why maybe he's someone that Dalio might go to. Dalio, of course, is famous for his his 200 or so principles, which he's um, 
elucidating even more in a in this book that's coming out any minute now. Um, and what his 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 main line is, you know, he's in favour of radical truth and transparency, which almost sounds like it comes out of a George Orwell novel or, you know, a, a, from you know from a, from a, a, a socialist or communist empire. So I can see on that level why Matt's getting it. Also, I think hasn't hasn't um, Bridgewater just opened a new fund or trying to open a new fund in China? So there's a practical element to this as well, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, look. At a certain level, they probably are kindred spirits. I have, I have no doubt that Dalio, at a, at a certain level, actually sees uh, someone similar to himself, again, within the Chinese context. I mean, they're both very well known for having a proclivity for abstractions and kind of grand philosophizing when they're in private. Um, but there is, uh, you know, both of, both of these characters within their respective spheres also have to balance kind of high-minded principles with just the cut and thrust of reality within, again, within their, their respective spheres. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, perhaps an example that, well, there's there's plenty of examples on Wang Qishan's side of where he's had to actually engage in political knife fighting. Um, but certainly, I mean, to the extent that for Dalio praising Wang in the book, I mean, it does a couple things. Um, a, if you're going to open up a big fund in China you're going to get sucked into the political economy of that country to a much greater degree than you ever would outside of it, even if you're taking Chinese money and investing it abroad. Um, so to the extent that having a relationship with Xi Jinping or with uh, Wang Qishan, um, you know, maybe it opens some doors, maybe you can, at the very least, you get some FaceTime, you can kind of plead your case if you're having issues. But it also signals to everybody else that you deal with within the system, whether it's ministerial officials, local government officials, um, you know, they can also see this book and they can see that you have a relationship with mm. uh, perhaps the de facto number two politician in the country. Um, and so maybe they're going to treat you a little bit differently as well. So, Chris, do you see a bunch of other executives saying, hmm, like light bulbs going off? Oh, I'll just write a book praising some Chinese government official and maybe I can get Facebook into China or Google or whatever it may be, you know, everybody clamoring to kind of get into to that market. Sure. So I don't think that this particular playbook of flattery of Chinese leaders is necessarily a new or novel development. I think that it's something that you see in companies from, um, you know, Facebook uh, trying to enter China with pictures of, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg jogging by a very smoggy forbidden city or him with a, a copy of uh, Xi Jinping's own book on governance casually displayed near his desk and so forth. Um, I think that, you know, this is a political system that frankly rewards that kind of behavior. Um, and so if you're going to enter China, um, not necessarily saying that you need to go that route, but um, it certainly can't hurt that you're publicly praising some of these figures. And it has worked for firms in the past. But Dalio, of course, has invested a fair bit of time in this, or at least uh, some number of years, a number of visits, because he says he, every time he goes to China, he sees one. Right. And they discuss philosophy and probably, you know, expound on the various principles of life as, as, as they see it as philosophizers. But um, the other issue here, as I see it, though, is that both of these men are at or near the end of their careers. So Dalio has been trying to hand the reins over somewhat unsuccessfully, as we've seen in the press last year at Bridgewater. And Wang is facing uh, probably having to step down from the committee at this year's Congress, right? Yes. So, I mean, firstly, will he definitely step down? And secondly, what role can, what role can these two guys play together? 
or for each other if they are gradually stepping back from the main stage? So I'll start with Wang's predicament, which is pretty uh, unusual in, in Chinese politics. The short answer to your question is no one knows if he's going to step down. No one knows for sure. He should. There is an age limit in uh, among the popular standing committee members that's called colloquially known as seven up, eight down. So if you're 67 or younger at the time of the party congress, you are eligible to stay on or get promoted, uh, whichever it is. If you're 68 or older, you have to step down. Um, Wong is 69. The issue here is that it might not be his choice per se of whether he stays or whether he goes. Uh, the reason is that there's a whole line of speculation in Beijing that is that suggests that Xi Jinping himself wants to stay on for possibly a third term or longer after 2022. He can't do that if the age limits are in place. So if you're going to break the age, if you yourself want to break the age limit, a nice way to do that might be to use kind of a stalking horse. And Wang is extremely popular in China among uh, both you know ordinary folks and among the elites. Um, it would be very easy to either move him into the role of premier as an economic manager or to say, you know, we need to, quote unquote, uh, you know, get the job done for the anti-corruption campaign. So he's got to stay on for, for one more term. And then you've kind of broken that age limit. Now, the, the irony in all of this is that Wang has spent his entire career trying to institutionalize party norms, trying to bring it away from the Mao era and say, we're not going to be reliant on one person anymore. And in the book, Dalio recounts when he asked Wang for advice on his own firm and future, the planning for the future of Bridgewater, Wang points to the example of Julius Caesar and the overthrow of the Roman Republic. And he says, you know, the lesson I take away from that is that no one individual can be more powerful than the system. So obvious implications there for both individuals um, and, and not a little bit of irony as well. Chris, that was absolutely fascinating. That was really interesting. I'm mean, using Julius Caesar between a communist and a, and a capitalist as an example is excellent. Thanks very much for that. We'll definitely have you back soon. Exxon has a problem. It may not seem so. The 336 billion oil major run by Darren Woods, for example, commands one of the best valuations of the business. But it's working through its oil reserves faster than it's replacing them, and Delhi production is falling too. Joining us in the studio for once is Lauren Silver-Loughlin up from Dallas. Good to have you with us, Lauren. Thank you. So um, your contention here is that, that one of the ways they could, that Exxon could get past these problems of burning through its reserves and not producing as much as it used to is to maybe buy something in the Permian Basin in West Texas. So tell us, tell us first of all what, why that, what, what that would achieve and, and, and why, it, why it might work. So this idea has been kicking around for a while. And uh, earlier this year, they bought land in the Permian Basin from the Bass family of Fort Worth, Texas. And so the talk about them actually buying a Permian-based company went away. What's happened over the last six months or so, longer really over the last year, the actual valuations of these companies that have large operations in the Permian have come down fairly significantly. Um, and Exxon's valuation has stayed roughly the same. So it gives them a pretty decent opportunity to buy something. So what, what, why have the valuations only come down in the past year or so? I mean, the, the, the main oil drop was two years ago. So. Yeah, I think what's happened in the Permian is people are starting to realize that they're not making money. Um, they're making more in revenue, they're producing more, but what they're doing is driving the oil price lower um, as they're producing more. They're becoming more efficient, so they're getting closer to actually making money, but they haven't quite yet. 
um, and people are still a bit worried about that. So if Exxon goes and buys a company in the Permian, wouldn't they be saddled with kind of the same uh, problem? Perhaps. What they get is production. They get oil reserves um, immediately. And they also have this land that they're starting to put rigs on. But they don't have as much knowledge and information as the the drillers that have been there for the last several years, 20 years, some of them. Um, And fracking certainly over the last several years. So that knowledge, um, which they'll be able to get through an acquisition and then apply to their land that they have. And this is what they acquired from the Bass family. Yes, exactly. So it's just land. It's not they like acquired land rigs. and they've been build, building on it okay. over the last couple of quarters. Yeah, and um, and there's all sorts of things that they can do with the sand, with the way that they use the sand, with the different um, different depths that they drill, and that information the companies that are currently there and have been operating there have, have gleaned over the last few years. Right, so that gets some extra expertise as well. I suppose that's what helps with the whole argument about whether to buy or not, because even though I mean you, you lay that out quite well that the, the valuations have come down of the targets. Exxon's valuation compared to some of its bigger peers has stayed the same while theirs have dropped. But I think but aren't, aren't both Targets and Exxon trading at roughly the same level now, which means if they go and buy something, they have to pay a premium, which means they got to, Exxon's got to justify it with some cost cuts. Right, yeah. So they'll actually, with a premium, be paying more on a multiple basis than where they trade, which stock investors always have something of a problem with. Um, and uh, and it reflects a fairly high amount of costs that they'll have to cut to justify that premium. So it would be interesting to hear how Woods would explain that away. Um, I imagine one way would be to, to talk a little bit about the efficiencies he could get on this land that he's building on, but there's really no sort of total dollar value that you could apply to that at this yeah, point. It's not, it's not an easy thing. You can just say, because we'll do this, we'll, it'll save us this. Oh, I suppose they could do a little bit of savings, but it's not like if you go into a, a company and you say, right, we're going to buy this, we're going to cut X amount out. Now, you, you looked at a company uh, that made an acquisition earlier this year um, just to get a sense of what cost cuts are possible. Uh, Noble bought Clayton Williams earlier this year. It said it could cut a roughly 30% of of the cost, but um, investors really loved that deal. So, oh, oh, were both of those in the Permian already? Yes. Okay, so that's that's like a so what we call an in-market deal. Whereas Exxon coming in wouldn't really. Okay, it's got the land, but it would be, basically wouldn't be able to find as many cost cuts. And yet, it's something you were looking. What was the company we, that you chose? It was uh, Diamondback Energy. Diamondback Energy, right? So, which they could probably pick up for I don't know, 11, 12 billion if they paid a thirty percent premium. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Which means, which means what for cost cuts? So I think the company, the number that I came to in the piece was that they'd have to cut roughly $360 million of costs, which would be something like Diamondback's, you know, 60 or so percent of Diamondback's current costs. Of course, it's not a perfect calculation because Exxon's so big and it has its, you know, own operations there in the Permian. And so you can't always apply that um that percentage cost cut to the to the seller, but it, it's a pretty decent read anyway. It's not. It's it's a it's a good starting point for any deal that happens, I suppose. Yeah. Um, were one were one to happen, but it does make it look really difficult. Which means then we go back to what we were saying earlier. How how do you, as Darren Woods, manage to justify doing the deal? I mean, 
you know, you're right. We, we've got. I just put, put into context again. What what is it that Exxon's facing on on production and reserves? And it's 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 way below its peers. Bigger picture, all of its integrated competitors are really boosting their reserves. You have Shell, you know, BP, several others who have been growing that pot, so to speak, over the last three years. And Exxon has been gradually chipping away at it. Why why is that a problem? Well, they they have lots of longer term projects. Um, first of all, they have issues with their project in Russia right now. Um, and they were late to the Permian. So, you know, while Chevron, for example, has lots of Permian assets and, and those are coming online, have been for the last couple of quarters, Exxon has nothing to really show for what it's done. Um, and so by buying a Permian producer right now, it's not like going out and, and building some, you know, buying some space that you have to build a rig that takes three years to do and you have, you know, some sort of political hurdles to get through. You know, you're essentially buying a company cur- currently drilling, and in, in a matter of days, you can have that oil in your, you know, in your pot. Do companies want to have reserves? Too many reserves on the books? So, if you think, if everyone's looking at climate change goals and the whole fear of having so-called stranded assets on your books, i.e., we've got so many reserves, we might not be able to use them because we not, might not be allowed to under, under the Paris agreements. Why is it a problem for for reserves to be falling? It's a tricky question. Um, What you want as an investor is reserves falling on purpose, um, not on accident, which I think is what's happening at Exxon. So um, Exxon, you could probably look out to 2030 and ask the question, what should Exxon's reserves look like then? Um, But what they look like today is different because you don't really see demand falling um, right now. It's going to take a a long time before that happens. And you don't want Exxon's reserves falling in the near term. So they need a quick fix. Yeah. So I wanted to go back uh, about the Permian. Uh, Why there? I mean, is that the the best place that they could, you know, target? Or are there other places that might make more sense for them? It's certainly the best right now. It's the driver for the oil prices. Um, And, you know, a big question as a driller and thinking about where you're going to, you know, explore and produce is what are the hurdles to actually getting that oil out of the ground? Um, Price is only one hurdle. And the Permian accomplishes that because it's one of the lowest price producers in the world. Um, Other places that may be cheaper, you have, uh, you know, you have geopolitical issues that are keeping producers from going there, Russia, Saudi Arabia. So um, right now, if you need to get more oil, it's certainly one of the best places to go. Okay, so Lauren, let's put you on the spot. Strategically, it looks like this buying in the Permian would be a sound idea. Financially, we're not so sure. Is Darren Woods going to bite the bullet and buy something? Yes, I think he is. When? I mean, I would probably say in the next couple of months, um, certainly before the end of the year. He has all this money he's saying he's going to spend. Uh, the valuations are good now, and you have no idea what's going to happen to those in, in a few months. Okay, thanks, Lauren. We'll have you back on the show probably from Dallas very soon. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Chris Bedore and Lauren Silva Laughlin. Kudos to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ryan Warner, and Andrew D'Antonio. And finally, thanks to you, our listeners. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition. Thanks for listening.